Good morning. Good morning. Thank you. Today's reading is from uh, Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 to 11. If you would like to follow me, please turn to page 6 of your bulletin. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make joy, complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfishness, <clears throat> out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Jesus Christ, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. By taking the very nature of, at a servant, of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him, in, gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Buenos días. La lectura esta mañana se encuentra en la Carta a los Filipenses, capítulo 2, versículos 1 al 11. Por tanto, si sienten algún estímulo en su unión con Cristo, algún consuelo en su amor, algún compañerismo en el Espíritu, algún afecto entrañable, llénenme de alegría teniendo un mismo parecer, un mismo amor, unidos en alma y pensamiento. No hagan nada por egoísmo o vanidad, más bien, con humildad consideren a los demás como superiores a ustedes mismos. Cada uno debe velar no solo por sus propios intereses, sino también por los intereses de los demás. La actitud de ustedes debe ser como la de Cristo Jesús, quien siendo por naturaleza Dios, no consideró el ser igual a Dios como algo a que aferrarse. Por el contrario, se rebajó voluntariamente, tomando la naturaleza de siervo y haciéndose semejante a los seres humanos. Y al manifestarse como hombre, se humilló a sí mismo y se hizo obediente hasta la cruz y muerte de cruz. Por eso Dios lo exaltó hasta lo sumo y le otorgó el nombre que está sobre todo nombre, para que ante el nombre de Jesús se doble toda rodilla en el cielo y en la tierra y debajo de la tierra. Y toda lengua confiese que Jesucristo es el Señor, para gloria de Dios Padre. Thanks, guys. Let's pray together. Let's pray. Jesus, we come before you, bringing all of our weaknesses, mental, moral, spiritual, and we're not able 
to get ourselves to understand who you are or to understand who we are. We can't change our own hearts. We can't change our own lives. We cannot change our world. We're powerless to do this on our own. And so we look now to the one who was strong and yet became weak, Jesus, our Savior. And would you come now again and be present and make your words to come powerfully into our lives. Do what we can't do for ourselves. We're trusting in you. Send your spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, last week, we looked at this topic, this idea of solidarity. Solidarity, especially in the face of hardship, shared amongst Christian brothers and sisters, standing firm together. Found this theme in the last chapter of Philippians, moving into the second chapter of Philippians, where we're picking up again, and we were able to wonderfully apply this biblical idea and theme and call to the tragedy in Charleston, South Carolina. We touched on it last week, but Paul here in today's passage develops it even further in the first part of Philippians chapter 2. And he develops it in this direction, which we touched on last week, but want to explore further. And the idea is this, that solidarity requires humility. Solidarity requires humility. That applies to the challenge of standing together as brothers and sisters in this community, in this room, uh, to think that what we most need to be together, to be one, to share the kind of intimacy and unity that we all long for, belonging and connectedness, what we most need is humility. Not just more commonality of interests or of background. Solidarity requires humility. And that also applies to the challenge of standing together in solidarity with our brothers and sisters in Charleston and with African Americans across our nation and our nation's ugly racial history, especially in a moment in time like this. To think that what we most need for racial reconciliation, in fact, is not courage in the face of resistance, though there is a need for some of that. But scripture tells us what we most need is humility. The humility of seeking someone else's interests ahead of my own. The humility of repenting for sins that are my own. The humility of forgiving, of reconciling. The humility of valuing someone else above myself. The humility of dying to my selfish ambition and to my pride. Solidarity, dear friends, requires humility. But what is the humility that brings people together? What does it look like? How does it behave, if you will? The Apostle Paul thankfully tells us 
in this passage. And what he gives us is first a model and then secondly a mandate. We'll find our model of humility here and then we'll look at what he gives as our mandate of humility. So first, the model. Our model of humility. Look at verse 5, which says this. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as who? Christ Jesus. The model of humility that produces solidarity is Jesus, of course. And what we have in the following verses, verses 6 through 11, scholars tell us is actually probably an ancient poem. A poem that was known in the first century Mediterranean churches, or maybe it was a hymn. A poem that was put to song, that was sung in the early church. A poem, a song, either way, it's clear that these words were meant not just to be known, but to be sung in our hearts. A song to our souls. And this is what this song is all about. This is its message. That Jesus descended voluntarily with the humility of downward mobility. Moving from the highest heights of glory to the deepest depths of suffering. As verse 6 tells us, Jesus was in very nature God, one with God, enjoying with the Father sublime equality. But he chose not to exploit his divinity, his power, status, and eternal glory as something to be used to his own advantage for me, saying no to selfish ambition, saying no to vain conceit, until his mission of love was complete. The fullness of everything himself made himself nothing. Climbing down, climbing down. A stairway from heaven even to hell. He assumed the nature of a servant, we're told, entering the vulnerability of humanity. He became a man, then still climbing down. He willingly, obediently, even joyfully submitted himself to God unto death. The one deserving our endless and unending praise was treated as forgettable, worse, treated as a criminal. Dying in shame, no name, no dignity, there on a Roman cross, suffering for us infinite loss. Punished for my sin, my selfish ways, my, your will to win. Do you know the story? Do you know the song, friends? The highest stooped down 
to be the lowest, the greatest, became the least. He climbed down. So God lifted him up, exalted him to the highest place, gave him the name that is above every name, to be known one day with cosmic fame, that every knee should bow at that name, and every tongue acknowledge that name, that saving name, that powerful name, that sweetest name, that forgiving name, that compassionate name, that shame-covering name, that dignity-restoring name, that life-giving name. What is that name? That name is Jesus. His name is Jesus. Let the people praise his name. Amen. This is the story. He descended voluntarily with the humility of downward mobility. Do you know him? Do you love him? Do you bow your knee to him? As you see him climbing down, do you see yourself and all manners of life climbing in the opposite direction with selfish ambition and vain conceit? Is your soul satisfied with him? And are you being so transformed and shaped by him that Jesus' story is starting to become your own? Where it's starting to change the way you relate to others too with this sort of humility. Which brings us to our second thought. That it's through our model of humility, Jesus himself, that we also receive our mandate of humility. Our mandate. Again, verse 5, it's clear just what our calling is. In your relationships with one another, we're told, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Which means that everything I just described, everything that the word, this song, hymn, and poem just presented to you about what motivated and informed all that Jesus did from eternity past through Calvary to eternity future is also to be our mindset, those who say, that is my story too. Remember what that mindset was, verse 6, that he did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing. Literally, he emptied himself in order to serve us. Theologian J.I. Packer explains what this self-emptying means with these words. He says it meant a laying aside of glory, a voluntary restraint of power, 
An acceptance of hardship, isolation, ill-treatment, malice, and misunderstanding. Finally, a death, and all for you and me. This here is self-emptying humility. Again, a laying aside of glory, a voluntary restraint of power, an acceptance of hardship, even isolation, ill-treatment, malice, and misunderstanding, finally, even death, out of love for neighbor. As another scholar paraphrased these verses, he who had always been God by nature did not cling to his privileges as God's equal, did not cling to his privileges as God's equal, but stripped himself of every advantage. Dearly beloved, here is our mandate. In Jesus' name, to disadvantage ourselves for the advantage of others. This is gospel humility, downward mobility, incarnational love and service, our mandate in Jesus' name to disadvantage ourselves for the advantage of others. What does this look like in practice? Can we briefly, I owe you that, I think, briefly apply this in two ways? First, marriage equality and the Supreme Court. Big news, of course, the end of last week, a historic and landmark decision that changes the law of the land. And of course, the historic orthodox position of the Christian church has been, is that marriage is a covenantal relationship between a man and a woman. But I know that there are divergent beliefs on the matter represented even across this room, and my plea for now is, can we learn to walk together and learn together, even in the face of what might be significant disagreement? And what I mean and what I want to stress here in light of this passage is simply this. How we engage this matters much in the heart of God not just what we engage. The character and tone and manner with which you either grapple with a decision gone wrong or celebrate a decision in your heart gone right matters if you are a follower of Christ. Surrounded as we are in this time by much panic and gloating, anger and finger wagging, what can humility and downward mobility 
for the sake of solidarity, look like a colleague and friend, Scott Sauls, was helpful here as I pondered his words written in an article published by Q Ideas. This call he puts forward to the humility, first and foremost, of friendship across differences. To be able to say that perhaps despite significant disagreements, can we engage in genuine relationship? Can we, in his words, envision a world where convictions are not abandoned and not in spite of those convictions, but because of them, friendships are made? and honoring dialogue happens across ideological differences. Scott helpfully continues, it's not that ethics are unimportant. Don't get me wrong. Ethics are very important. But we can't talk about ethics in a productive way without the necessary prerequisite of friendship. Do you care about the body of Christ and of this nation. Perhaps the best thing that you can do in the coming days and coming weeks is to sit down and have a meal with someone taking a different point of view than your own. Because if you don't have a substantial friendship, with someone of a different mind than yours on this issue, especially within the church, you are not living out Philippians 2. And then, of course, there is the humility, perhaps, of apology by the Christian church. If the call is to disadvantage ourselves for the advantage of others, could it be that one way of expressing humble self-disadvantaging might be to be committed not simply to win an argument, persuading another of what is the biblical, historic, orthodox view of marriage, but rather not to win an argument and not to even see it as being about me, but about the other, to love and to serve. And to be able to acknowledge with humility that so much historically that has driven this debate absolutely is the unjust and unkind marginalization of those who are other, of all kinds. That there is a long and sordid history here also of discrimination and unkindness even spite and scorn, even from those who call themselves believers in the doctrine of the image of God. 
which should ensure and guarantee for all people treatment in accord with human dignity, despite differences, even deep and grave disagreement, but to treat one another with respect. And this the church has not always done. To the LGBTQ community, whether friends or strangers or neighbors, on the block or in politics or in society at large, to humbly acknowledge the church's part in marginalizing large groups of people in such a way that it would come to this day that the only conceivable recourse for public acceptance, the only arena of justice, would be seen as the institution of marriage itself. Sometimes I wonder if in the last 30 years, if there had been more kindness, more respect, more humility, would marriage equality have become the issue that it is today? As Brother Scott writes in his article, we should not focus first on defending our rights, he's speaking to Christians, but should instead focus first on repairing relational damage. There's much to say, isn't there? To those of you who have been wounded and harmed, there's much to say, isn't there, in conversations with dear friends and neighbors and some of you from the LGBTQ community far beyond policy and principle, but in humble apology. Secondly, if in Jesus' name to disadvantage ourselves for the advantage of others is our mandate, then what this means is in service and love for others that we recognize the advantages that we hold and that we learn to give thanks for them, then lay them down for the advantage of others. Where, friends, do you have advantages over others? You might call them blessings. You might call them privilege. You might call them gifts. But do we recognize these things? It might mean recognizing racial advantage across society. And understanding that if you have an advantage because of a society that is generally built around a majority, that there's much for you in the wake of Charleston and its aftermath for non-black but especially white brothers and sisters to stand not just in solidarity but humble service 
making use of the advantages that one has to give a voice, to open doors, to start conversations, to turn things around. As Dr. King put so clearly in his letter to the Birmingham, from a Birmingham jail, how important and strategic and reconciling it is for this movement of reconciliation to be carried not only by blacks, but also and perhaps especially by white allies in view of racial advantage. It might mean recognizing your economic advantage, the unique blessings that you might have that others don't, of being generous as we've talked about in past months, being generous with the things that you have, your possessions, your time, your home, of serving others out of your economic advantage. It might mean even serving out of your sexuality advantage. Can we talk about that? The ways in which it is just simply true that this world is geared towards and structured around straight persons. And that in the interests of recovering some generally shared sense of dignity and broader society for LGBTQ friends, that Christians be the first in line to get out in front to extol human dignity, to care, to use one's own social advantage, to shine the light, yes, of God's glory on his image in every one of our neighbors, to even labor to find every possible way that scripture allows and gives mandate to seek out equal treatment in society for all our dear neighbors and friends, humbly wrestling with what that means and even with what also that cannot mean. It means making use of what you might call our insider social advantage, even in this room, for those that have more of a place of belonging than others. The advantage of comforts or familiarity. I have my spot and I have my own people. That I would disadvantage myself, assume discomfort for the comfort of someone else. So go out of my way to yes, for a moment, or maybe even for an extended time, to make life not work just for me, but in loving service and humility to work for you. In hospitality and welcome and love. You see, these advantages, this privilege is like currency. Don't just throw it away or trash it, but spend it out of love for others. Looking at the one who deserved all privilege, but who did not consider it something to be grasped, 
but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant to love. Jesus didn't exploit his privilege. He didn't deny it either, pretending he didn't have any. As author and thinker Andy Crouch put it in his book on the topic of power, playing God, the priorities of Jesus are to spend his privilege, not to conserve it. And for him to spend it meant to give his life as a ransom for many. What can it look like, dear friends, to share and repurpose our advantages for the blessings of others, to use our privilege not for our benefit, but for someone else's? Because the model is Jesus himself, the man of downward mobility, of humility. And the mandate is to disadvantage ourselves for the advantage of others. As one has paraphrased these early verses in chapter 2, dear friends, don't push your way to the front. Don't sweet talk your way to the top. Put yourself aside and help others get ahead. Don't be obsessed with getting your own advantage. Forget yourselves long enough to lend a helping hand. Have this mindset among yourselves. Indeed, it is already yours in Christ Jesus. He gives it to you. Let's pray. So God, we seek wisdom to know what this humility and what this love might look like. That you would pour out your spirit to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. This impossible work of turning proud, self-exalting hearts to humble ones, to ones like Christ, in whose name we pray, amen. Let's stand together and let's sing. Let's thank the Lord for the, the cross, for the price that he paid, how he humbled himself on our behalf. Thank you for the cross, Lord. Thank you for the price you paid, bearing all my sin and shame.
Invite some Q&A, a chance for us to talk through and process uh, stuff from this passage, stuff that I said um, and taught, and would love to invite you, even if you're brand new to the church, to participate. Um, if you could ask a question, that'll help our flow um, and be mindful of just a whole host of different kinds of folks uh, that may or may not understand all the words that you're using. Explain yourself. That'll help us be a community. Uh, so any questions that you have? Oh, yes, Missy. Uh, okay. You typed it out. You typed it out? Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, we'll get coffee sometime, Missy. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
You know what I would say to that question? So I think the question, if I could try to summarize it, is how, how would one, um, if, if one believes biblically that, um, that an LGBTQ lifestyle or behavior um, is, as you said, sinful, and if there's that belief, how can you engage um, with a person who believes differently or sees things differently and what does that even look like in conversation? I mean, is that a fair? Um, yeah, I don't necessarily hold that stance, but okay, yeah. curiosity as far as other people like relationships that people have with other people. Yeah. And not so much to say pure sinner because they're all obviously all sinners, right? That's fine. But how is it genuine love if you don't actually confront this sin of the Yeah. Is it just being a little bit of social gospel? Right, right. No, I think it's, it's, I think the answer that came to mind when you were first sharing it was, I think it's important for people to actually ask for honest feedback from people to say, what does it sound like I'm saying when you hear me say this? Or what, what does my belief system feel like you? I, the trouble with this dialogue and debate is the amount of talking past one another or the amount of relying upon sound bites and slogans without actual dialogue. And I know there's a chicken and the egg thing because it requires a certain amount of trust and presumed goodwill even to sit down and dare to have uh, such a conversation. But I do think we have to learn from each other by hearing what actually our words and beliefs are how they're impacting one another. But I do believe what you're suggesting is right. At some point, of course, conversation does need to go to what one absolutely believes um, about what scripture says about a gay or lesbian lifestyle or that sort of thing. If the word of God is um, the ruling word of God in a person's life, the loving thing would be to respectfully and utterly humbly speak the truth, but I also think the way in which we're trying to talk to people or persuade them, I mean, we have to ask the question, what, what, what is the goal in a given conversation? Um, I'm not sure we're always clear on that, but if we're actually trying to persuade a person, uh, n no one abides by God's law without first experiencing the sweetness of His grace. That's the paradox of his kindness leading to repentance. And that doesn't mean that we don't speak truth, but it does mean that we have to be careful not to put the cart before the horse, and that nobody follows the words of Jesus and the hard sayings of Jesus without first falling in love with Jesus, the lover of our souls. And so I think some of it is having good, helpful conversations, but also having to talk about who Christ is and what the gospel of grace is all about. Sorry if I'm not touching exactly where you want to go, uh, but happy to talk about your eight other questions too. <laughs> yeah. Others? Yes, sir, in the back. Hey, Lamont. Yeah. Yeah, so I think I said, as I said in the passage, I mean, sorry, as I said in the sermon, that the historic 
uh, settled historic biblical orthodox, by orthodox I mean settled historic biblical um, view on the matter is that marriage is intended by God and designed by God to be between a man and a woman. Um, I think there are complexities to how that's worked out in public policy, though. And as I try to suggest, I think in a, in a mouthful sort of a way, I think Christians need to fight for justice and kindness as best as they absolutely can, and maybe even be on the front lines of those battles, but without compromising what Scripture says about human sexuality and about uh, marriage itself, but absolutely in support of shared dignity and worth in society. Um, so, you know, how, how one works out the specifics of the Supreme Court uh, decision, I think you can talk in constitutional terms, legal terms, uh, moral, ethical, and the theological terms. Uh, but yeah, I think uh, that's where the church has stood on this issue. Yeah, Garrett. What if you talk just a little bit more about uh, Christ's humility uh, and some children's Bible stories to my kids? And you know, some of the claims that Jesus made don't really come off as some of my interpretation of what humble is. Mm. It's in the position that this is actually God and he's made himself a man. But is it um, a subservient? Uh, or Right. I, I think um, if you want to study more on the talk of, topic of humility, a skinny little book um, written by Tim Keller called The Something of Self-Forgetfulness. What's the title? Self-Forgetfulness is in the title. The Freedom, says Ivy. Yeah, that sounds right. The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. And what's important, this passage is taking a little bit of a different dimension on it, but it touches on it. Um, humility at its heart is a mind full of someone else. Pride is a mind full of myself. So humility is not thinking less of myself and thinking I, I stink, I'm nothing. Uh, it, it's actually seeing others as being uh, more valuable in the moment, interests more important, uh, than my own advantages uh, being conferred uh, to the other person. So that's why, I mean, absolutely it's a state of heart and it's a character, um, but that's why there are absolutely strong forms of humility. Uh, you, you, there, there, uh, there is a form of humility that can express itself in righteous anger because of the way a person is being harmed. And the humility of love cries out with a mind and a heart full of that person and not myself, flinging myself in harm's way for the sake of the other person is humility. Uh, humility is not just the meekness of you know, uh, just a quiet spirit, um, but is more 
always in scripture defined in relational terms, and that is having a mind and heart full of another person. Yeah, Plase, maybe last one here. So, uh, just go back to the question. Yeah, yeah. No, that's good. Yeah, what kind of like-mindedness are we trying to achieve? I think one thing that's <coughs> important, if you trace Paul's argument from the last part of Philippians 1 through to this passage, it's very clear that the unifying force of all the kind of solidarity and unity that Paul's talking about is the gospel. Uh, so it is not that we're all the same personality, that we all think the same about everything, but it's the bond of being united in Christ, sharing a common faith, future, life, destiny, community, right? And that sort of bondedness one to another. Um, so when he's saying like-minded, that word in the original Greek, mind, can also be translated soul or inner person. Um, it's, it's just sort of this overall sense of you, we are bound in heart together because of our shared experience of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I think that's the main um, thing that's at the heart of that. That's what we're talking about, right? You know, how that looks like, right? I think it, 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 it has to take practical, concrete form, right? Real relationships. Um, Paul's emphasis, of course, is on the character behind it. What, what does it look like? Start with humility. I mean, if you're just to take every relationship and interaction throughout this coming week and say, what would humility look like here? What would downward mobility look like here? What would disadvantaging myself for the advantage of others look like in this conversation, in this interaction, in this project, in this whatever? That, I think, might start to answer the question. Paul's not interested in giving us activities to do. <laughs> He's giving us the character necessary for that kind of solidarity. Cool? All right. Let's keep talking. We'll keep growing. We'll keep learning. <laughs>